Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is about gas. The reason for that is that if you read the blog, you know that I'm experimenting with something called resistant starch. Resistant starch is a kind of starch that is not digested in your stomach or in your small intestine. Instead, it goes almost like fiber to the large intestine, the colon, where it's supposed to be fermented by a bunch of healthy, happy microbes. So this is a form of prebiotic, something to feed your healthy gut biome. The only problem is that when you start eating that kind of resistant starch, you get a lot of gas. So for normal people, not on this horrible experiment, every time they pass gas, it's about 9% carbon dioxide and 7% methane, depending in large part on their diet. Both of those gases contribute to global warming, so the average person is passing gas 15 times a day. That means that in theory, at least, you're contributing to melting the polar ice caps and maybe ending the world as we know it, about 15 times a day, maybe more if you're still on one of those vegan diets. As a side note, since we're on the topic of gas in today's cool fact of the day, I found that when I switched to the Bulletproof diet, and particularly Bulletproof coffee, that gas became something that I never thought about and something that very, very rarely happens to me. In fact, Bulletproof coffee itself seems to me to be the absolute cure for that particular social problem. Before we get started on today's show, I'd just like to take a second to thank you because you've helped this podcast reach number one on iTunes. We've got more than 3 million downloads, more than a million people a month see the Bulletproof content on the podcast, the blog, and social media. And I just wanted to say thanks. I totally appreciate it. And I appreciate it if you take the time to click like on iTunes so other people can find the show. Uh, can't thank you enough, to be perfectly honest. 
What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is pretty darn cool. She's been teaching digital happiness, which is something that, honestly, I didn't know there was such a thing until I saw her work at TEDx Silicon Valley. And I'm talking about Anna Akbari. She's pretty interesting. She's taught classes in online dating and actually tried it herself. She taught for five years in New York, but now she's relocated to Silicon Valley and grew up in Iowa. So we have someone who's multi-coastal, comfortable with the flyover states, who teaches digital dating and a bunch of other cool stuff, and who's given a TED Talk. This sounds like a totally bulletproof conversation. At least that's what I'm hoping. Anna, welcome to Bulletproof Executive Radio. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So... What are you doing now that you left New York, you moved to Silicon Valley? I did, which was a big move for me. Uh, I am currently working down in the Valley with a tech incubator, uh, and I'm developing their entrepreneur education uh, for universities, governments, and international groups, um, and different corporations. How does that connect you with the sociology of style? Because that's what you're kind of well known for. Yes. Well, you know, I think the main way is that it's through the sociology of style that I really um, learned about the startup world and learned about what it means to be an entrepreneur and went through that whole process. So, um, you know, that is actually still in existence. We're actually relaunching next month, uh, which we're very excited about. But uh, yeah, so that's the connection. Just that's my background in tech entrepreneurship. All right. You just said something that doesn't make any sense to me. Style and technology in Silicon Valley. Now, (laughs) having spent like 20 years of my career there working for startups and VCs and all, having seen Zuckerberg's sandals up close, like (laughs) style? (laughs) Tell me more. What is this sociology of style? And really tell the people listening, driving in their cars who probably haven't heard about it. Yeah. So so that's one of the uh, biggest most striking differences I've noticed between New York and Silicon Valley (laughs) would be the personal aesthetic choices of the inhabitants of those two regions. Uh, They couldn't be more different. Uh, In fact, just this morning, I was messaging a friend while I was on the Muni on my way to the Caltrain saying, this is so strange. I am on this packed train and I'm the only person wearing heels in the whole space, which in New York, that would just be in every person occurrence, right? But you're, you're in San Francisco. There had to be at least one guy wearing heels, right? <laughs> there may, it might have been. He might have been sitting down and I missed it. <laughs> no, 
know, there's a there's a there's a very big difference in in sort of the standard. It's much more obviously it's much more casual. It's much more of a um, a sort of permanent outdoorsy look. Even if you are going into the office, you always look like you're poised to go and scale a mountain or hike for the day, um, you know, complete yeah. with the backpack and the technical gear. Um, so it's sort of, you know, embodying that mentality and that lifestyle all the time, even when you're in the office. And you're saying that's more of a New York thing versus a Silicon Valley thing? Or? No, that's a Silicon Valley. That's what I thought. Like when I spend time in those, yeah, but even that, that's a dressed up entrepreneur in, from a Silicon Valley perspective. Like if you're a coder, you're like, well, my jeans, like they're kind of clean and it's a stereotype, but honestly, there's a little bit like, I'm so good. I don't have to dress up. That's right. That's right. And if you, if I was just having this conversation with someone where, you know, if you did wear a suit and a tie to work or to give a presentation, you would be seen as it actually be disempowering for you um, because it would be seen as you not understanding the rules of the game in this particular space. And you would be seen as sort of irrelevant. It wouldn't it would actually would not work in your favor. Well, th this is kind of a, a really old story. Most people probably haven't heard it. I don't know. Maybe they have. But it turns out my mother was the first employee for the company that became Microsoft. No, she didn't get any stock. This is back in Albuquerque. And there was a day when like Bill Gates showed up in his whatever flip-flops and jeans from the 70s and the IBM guys showed up. And of course, they're wearing suits. So the next day, the IBM guys show up in jeans and Bill Gates shows up in a suit, right? So they're like both trying to, to get th themselves going. Do you actually yeah. like in your courses, though, do you teach like how to like not dress too awkwardly for your environment? Well, you know, one of the things I do is I have my students engage in ethnographic field work where they actively have to transform some aspect of their physical persona uh, and then test it out, see how people engage differently with them and how how they feel different and therefore behave different in their social environments. Um, and so I, I try to help them become aware of what they're taking for granted um, because, because some people don't realize how attached they are to particular aspects of their physicality or certain elements of their personal aesthetic. So for instance, a woman with really long hair, um, that may be completely embedded in her sense of identity. Um, and you put the hair up in a hat and suddenly she feels that everyone's staring at her or that, you know, she's not getting the same responses as she, as she usually does. Um, so small things like that can, can be radically transformative for an individual. So this is actually like the PUA, the pickup artist sort of thing, but for people who aren't trying to just get laid. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> does it also work to get laid? You know, I've, I've not really had a student that has tested that out in particular, at least to my knowledge. They didn't write about it, at least for my class. <laughs> um, I got but, funded and I made I went on a date. <laughs> like, okay, I get but, it. But absolutely, yes. You know, there are there have been um, studies done where they there was there was one and, and I saw the video of it where it was actually done in England and they put a guy um, in a window, like a shop window. And they had women come by and, and rate him. Um, and they rated him on what his perceived income was, uh, what they would guess his job was, and if they'd go on a date with him. And then they took the same guy, they ch changed the way he looked, and they put him back in the window. And they had more women come by. And they asked him, and as you can predict, you know, when they, when they dressed him up and they put him in certain outfits, it completely aligned with, you know, the income level, the job, and yes, they wanted to date him then. So. Wow. All right. Random question. Yeah. How should I dress when I want to get past the TSA with minimum harassment at the airport? Oh, 
that is a really good question. And one that I have not figured out because I get patted down every single time. Sorry, you're, you're screwed. You're an attractive woman. Anyone who can see you on the YouTube version of this knows you're totally getting like the, the, the fine tooth comb every time. That's just how it works. But like if I've noticed, because I experiment, I travel way too much, like a hundred times a year. I get on a plane, probably more than that, honestly. And uh, I've noticed like if, if you dress certain ways, it's just going to suck. And if you dress like in a sport coat, they'll probably leave you alone. And lately I'm like, if you dress like a scumbag, but really nice scumbag clothes, they'll also leave you alone. Like, like they're looking at the weave of your pants to see if they're like Walmart pants or like Nordstrom pants, I swear. But like, that's what I think it comes down to. I think the more you look like you are a professional and you have somewhere to be, um, and that you are someone that demands respect, yeah. they're going to treat you accordingly. And, and uh, also, like, are you nice to them? Like, they're all just doing their yeah. job. They're, they're working to protect <laughs> everyone. So, like, if you're a jerk, you should expect to be treated like a jerk. But yeah. it, it's funny. Just the difference is huge. So you're doing this to teach people throughout their life to, like, look different, which helps people in business school and whatever else. Okay. Yeah, I, I work with people individually, and I go into uh, corporations, law firms, and I talk to them about how the way they self-present actively transforms the way they're perceived in different contexts. It, it transforms their claim to power in public, and ultimately it affects how much money they're going to make, who their mate is, all these really important factors in life, which really elevates aesthetics to beyond something that's just superficial, right? All right, here's another confession. When okay. I was 23, I wanted to get raises like anyone who's 23. And I realized that old people get paid more. <laughs> so I went to the stylist, the hairstylist, and I'm like, I want gray on my temples. Now, being 23, I didn't actually realize that there were differences between like high-end stylists and ones who barely um, like were like able to cut my hair. I'm like, I don't know, it was $13 or something. Right. Uh, so I, I, they kept trying to dye my hair dark to keep it from being gray. I'm like, no, I want my hair to be gray on the temples. So then I'll get a raise. And I honestly think that would have been true. Is that, <laughs> is that true? So, so there's a little bit of a, a gender double standard. Oh, of course that would be for boys, right? Yeah. That would be for guys. For women, it would have the reverse effect or inverse effect. Yeah. And that's not fair. No, no, it definitely is not. I have two women over 60 working for bulletproof and they both rock so that's cool (laughs) yeah that yeah it's it's great and the unfortunate thing is that women are expected to look like they're in their 20s but have the experience of someone who's you know in their 60s and so it's an impossible and very challenging standard and so that's one of the things i work with some of my female clients on are most of your clients women or men overall over the years it's been a pretty close split 50 50 um, I would say mm, maybe it skews maybe 60, 40 women, um, but I, I do work with a lot of men. Um, I work with a lot of people that are going through any sort of transition because if you think about the moments in your life when you're undergoing a dramatic change, there's often a, a sort of physical catharsis that involves it or, or having a sort of physical catharsis or transformation helps you to take on a new identity or to shed an old one. So those people are also particularly ripe for advice. They're open to something new. They, they, they want to, to uh, actively and mindfully adapt a new persona. So they're, they're particularly great to work with. Okay, so you find people who want to make a change inside. They make a change in how they look, which changes how they act and how they feel, and then it's part of it. Yes. So, so 
would it be fair to say the work you're doing is like image consulting or are you different than those like LA stylist people who people keep telling me I should meet because I dress like a biohacker? So, so I call myself the thinking person stylist because I help people to understand their full sense of identity um, in a more holistic way. Um, and then of course there is a practical application to that, right? We do actually have to dig, dig in and say, okay, so what are your tools? Just like you have technical tools and you have supplements that you might take, all these different tools that transform your identity, transform your body. Um, we have to actively get into your closet eventually, but there is a lot of conversation about, you know, what are your goals? Who do you want to be? How do you see yourself? Uh, and just by listening to them talk, I can start to piece together a sort of future projected persona for them and help to guide them toward that and, and to realize it physically. That's really, really cool. I've not heard anyone explain the work of a stylist that way. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm a sociologist and that dips into a lot of psychology as well. And it's the intersection of the two that really are at play there. Okay, that's pretty cool. So you're you're basically working on that angle of like how do you hack the people around you by looking a certain way. That's right. That's right. How do you hack your own identity and therefore, if we, for lack of a better word, manipulate the uh, the people around you into behaving differently toward you? And so we might think of that as duplicitous, <laughs> but really we're all doing that on some level all the time. And it's just better if you're more aware of it. So a, a while back, I took a course called Urban Escape and Evasion, where you had to walk around after escaping from handcuffs, being handcuffed or handcuffed and kidnapped by a group of bounty hunters. And then you run around town for a day while they're trying to capture you and you have to like totally change how you look and how you act, uh -huh. um, which was like maybe the final exam sort of thing. Okay. <laughs> the, I still remember dramatically this experience where I needed to like walk past three bounty hunters who were looking for me. And so I like got a cigarette and I had like this hat and I walked like a guy seriously on drugs, like, like, like just jonesing about ready to snap. And people would like part, like the, like leave a 20 foot gap around me and no one would look at me, including the bounty hunters. I walked right past them and got what I wanted. It was so cool to just think like, oh my God. And this little girl walks right up to me and goes, hi. And I'm like, shh, don't tell anyone. Cause I don't know. She somehow knew that I wasn't exactly a threatening guy, yeah. uh, but like, that's an extreme example. But like, how do you? How do you dress if you don't want people to look at you? Like, what are the tricks? Well, there are different ways of blending in or or, or pulling back, right? And there's there's a con we're we're in a constant state of negotiation between uh, sticking out and claiming our individuality, and then demonstrating that we're part of a group. And it's always a delicate balance. You always need a little bit of both. Um, and the best way to to not stand out is to really look like everyone else, right? Is to actually conform as, as much as possible and to conform in a way that is very muted. So, um, you know, it can't be conformity in a sloppy way, right? It has to be conformity in a very sort of status quo kind of expression. Does that make sense? It can't, so for instance, let's say you're in an office, let's say you're in, um, let's say you're in a law firm, right? And so if you, if you want to not stick out, then you wear your brown loafers and your brown belt and a suit that fits you well, right? But that isn't the top of the line suit, uh, but that isn't, doesn't look like you got it at, you know, 
for, for you know, $50 and, and didn't get it tailored. And uh, the collar should be something that is mildly stylish, but not, uh, not French cuffs, right? So, so there's a conservatism, but there's not a sloppiness. That is the best way to not stick out. Now, why you would want to do that, uh, I don't know. There, there are many instances, I suppose, where, where one could want to sort of fade into the background. For instance, if you know you need to observe in a particular way and you don't want to draw attention to yourself and you know you can get more information by being sort of the silent person in the corner, then, then that's a perfect opportunity to find that mix of conservatism and you know conformity. Interesting. And this sounds like something that you could totally like play around with as a biohacker just to see what you're doing. So I, I love what you're doing in that course. I wish I had taken that in school. It probably would have like taught me how to dress. So, all right. I've heard something else about you and, and I, I almost am embarrassed to ask, but is it true that you make students turn off their computers and cell phones when you're teaching? Yes. I am an <laughs> evil, evil professor. So you hate trees. Is that what this comes down to? Uh, yes, I hate trees and <laughs> I'm a total Luddite. <laughs> yeah, so I, I do do that and I'm very upfront about that at the beginning of my classes so that there's the, the student. And yet, even though I announce that to them, I still get complaints in the evaluations at the end of the semester um, because I tell them, you know, this class might not be for you if you need to be permanently plugged in at every moment because I have students that will say, oh, my, my mother, my boyfriend, my internship needs to be able to reach me in the next hour every at any given hour, not because there's a specific emergency at hand. So I say, that's fine. I respect that. That's not that. Then this class isn't for you. And the argument is that what do we gain when we turn off technology in a mindful way at a very particular time? So my argument to them is essentially that we have 20, 30 individuals who have hopefully read a particular text, who have thought about certain ideas for that day, who have come there with ideas and experiences and stories and questions. And so by engaging with your technology, by focusing on the screen, you are putting actually a physical barrier in front of yourself and you're allowing all these external distractions to filter in. So even if you turn off the internet, you're still looking at your, you know, Google Docs or Microsoft Word page and you're taking notes and you're editing it and you're making it look nice and you're missing things and you're not looking at each other in the eye and that eye contact makes a huge difference in the communication that you're having and the information that you're uh, that you're receiving and processing. And I asked them to think about the times when in their lives when they really have a moment like that. I mean, they're paying an extraordinary amount of money to be in this class. And yet they're sort of mentally opting out if they're on their technology. And so isn't it wonderful to have this hour to three hours uh, where you can really just be present with each other and it's all about the exchange of ideas. And that might sound antiquated and that's fine or too idealistic, but honestly, I can... I really notice the difference in the level of engagement and the kinds of conversations that we have when there's no technology present. And, and I would argue that, you know, we really, there really is a sort of lost art of conversation and a lost art of just, you know, extrapolating about ideas. And so this is, this is one way that we can carve out a small period of time each week to have that. Oh, oh sorry. I was just using my phone. No. <laughs> Uh, if you're just listening on the radio, sorry, I just held up my iPhone like I was checking my text, but I wasn't actually doing it. 
So I, I hear what you're saying. I, I'm, uh, I taught for five years at the University of California. Uh, a lot of times I don't talk about that, but I did that while I was working full time at one of the companies that created the modern cloud computing thing. So I teach almost every night and it's a constant struggle because part of me is like, if I'm not engaging people as an instructor and they want to do something else on their phones, like who am I to tell them no? Uh, on the other hand, it's easier to be an instructor when people are like paying attention because you sort of have them stuck. So I ended up, because largely I was teaching technology stuff, like, okay, use your phones. And right. then I would sort of give myself a pat on the back if I made, if I made most people not check their phone too often. Uh, but phones have changed since I taught, even though that wasn't you know more than like eight years ago or something. So they're just more addictive. And I think it also depends on the kind, the nature of the class, right? Yeah. When you're in the kind of class that, that I was in, it didn't demand technology. There wasn't, yeah. it just, it just wasn't, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't a design class or, you know, and it also wasn't a, a, a large lecture class where you oh, have yeah. 300 students in it. Yeah. And so, you know, some of them also say, well, I can take notes faster, okay, I know that there will be some things that maybe you don't scribble down as, as quickly, but the stuff you do write will be thoughtful. And if you do go and rewrite it and type it up, you're going to understand it differently and you're going to have a different relationship with that content. So yeah. I'm yet to find a, a compelling argument that would convince me to allow technology. That said, I do allow it at the breaks. Um, we all, I always give them a break and it's this sort of, media technology frenzy, right? I say, oh, here, take a break. And they're like, oh, <laughs> so, so do you actually talk about creating a tech-free environment outside the classroom? Like, Yes. What's um, your take on that? Like, what is, how do you define a tech-free environment today anyway? And like, why do people do that? Well, I don't think enough people do it, first of all. Um, for instance, I was just at brunch this weekend and I walked past this table of women probably six women who were all sitting together and all on their iPhones. And everyone's seen that. Everyone's seen the sort of dinner, drinks, gathering where the iPhone is right here or maybe right here. And, and they're sort of conversing, right? And, and, and so what is lost again in that? Why, why, does that? why does that matter? Why does it matter that we actually have a meaningful conversation with someone? Well, you know, if you think about it from a happiness perspective, you are, you are, you're building a stronger relationship. You're, you're, you're creating a stronger connection and you're also more likely to go into a flow state. And that's the thing that I didn't mention also about the classroom, which I think is really important. I feel it when I'm in there and I'm talking with them and we're discussing and I can, you know, you've been in situations where you can feel that flow state of a conversation and that makes work more enjoyable. It, it makes, it creates more long lasting, enduring happiness. Um, so I think that those are all reasons that it's important. I also think creating tech free environments is important because we have to think about what is the value of being alone and what does it even mean to be alone, uh, in a hyper-connected, uh, world. And it's about being alone with your thoughts carving out time to perhaps meditate, to clear your mind and all the cognitive, um, all the cognitive benefits that one can get from that quiet time, from quieting the mind. As I know you've talked about on your show before and the values of meditation and controlling the mind. And it's very, very difficult or impossible to do that when you are constantly bombarded with uh, technical distractions as well. It's a fair point. 
I went and I spent four days fasting in a cave uh, outside of Sedona with no technology uh, just because I'm like, let's play with no technology and just being alone with your thoughts and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, and it was generally relaxing and a little bit boring. And to be perfectly honest, but any time you meditate for days, it's boring. So that's part of meditation. Well, the- a lot more of that kind of stuff, right? Digital detox retreats and um, tech-free or cell phone-free parties. Um, and I'm an advocate for basically people just finding whatever, whatever day, whatever moment that they can work into their lives in any regular way. Um, even if it's just about limiting technology. So maybe it's about going to the movies, right? And they're still technically it involves technology, but it's still sort of an isolated time where you're not, you're not multitasking. You're not on call. Right. There's also a stress effect that a lot of people have. And I realized I really had this terribly I was one of the early email guys. I think I got email like in 1991. And I literally would feel like I was going to die when my email was down, which happened all the time because they didn't really have ISPs and Gmail and all that stuff. So it would happen and I'm disconnected and I just wasn't very self-aware back then. And I realized that the response most people get, even like very successful people, when an email comes in, you get the little ding on your whatever your device is, your iPhone. If you have that alert set on, you can see it in your brainwaves. Like it's a stress response and it'll like mess with you. Well, it's it's a tricky one, right? Because there's a stress response, but there, it also triggers your pleasure center mm-hmm. when you get pinged. So it makes you feel loved, connected, important, but... It's that momentary, it, I mean, I'm not the first person to ever describe it as an addiction, uh, something that has that mimics addictive yeah. behavior or, or addiction in the brain. Um, and that's essentially what's happening. And so it is, it is something that is very difficult to pull away from. Um, but when you do, you know, if you have someone reflect on a time when they are without technology, and this is one of the reaffirming um, notes that I often receive in my course evaluations is that students who originally experience immense anxiety at the thought of disconnecting from their technology come to find that it is a, a, a respite for them, that they feel like it's the only time where they don't have to be on duty, where their mom or their boyfriend or whomever is not pinging them every five minutes and demanding their attention. Um, and so they, they sort of relish in it. Not all of them, but at least a few. <laughs> I, I feel that way about airplanes. I, I'm totally opposed to having Wi-Fi in airplanes. It's evil. It's one of the last great places to do some wonderful reading. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that said, I, I don't know how to go to the bathroom without a cell phone. So if I don't have my cell phone, I'm going to have problems. But, you know, I'm <laughs> but like someone posted that on Facebook the other day and I was just laughing. I'm like, that <laughs> seems like, like that little respite is gone. <laughs> is there not, there probably is a Tumblr that's all about iPhones in the bathroom or something like that. I think 2%, be- <laughs> 2% of Apple's stock price has to do with iPhones falling in toilets or something like that. But. <laughs> Well, all right, let's talk about happiness. So your TEDx talk was about digital happiness. And I'm a quantified self. Like I like to measure what I hack, yep. at least while I'm hacking it. So how do you measure happiness? And how do you think we should go about hacking it? So happiness happiness is uh, is difficult to measure, though there are certain 
individuals, groups, and even countries that are working toward measuring it, right? So um, Bhutan, for one. I love that. Uh, <laughs> is is dealing with a uh, a gross national happiness. I believe, I believe that's what it's called. Gross, yeah. gross, yeah. And um, and Denmark is always ranked at the very top as well. And it's really, they really are interested in how do you measure well being? How do you check in with people? And really, it's about prioritizing it, right? So making sure that people feel like they're living. A good life, um, and I, but I think it's I think it's difficult. I think that quanti- the quantified self component is really interesting because, on one on the one hand, the more we measure things about ourselves, the more aware we are, and the more aware we are, the more we can fine tune it, and the more we can fine tune it in general, we can optimize our lives and and we become happier. However, the downside is that you know, self tracking. And the quantified self is really about control and um, efficiency. And I think those things have their limits, right? And so it can overreach to the point where you can become constantly living for that long-term record instead of just being present in the moment. And so I think that takes a lot of self-awareness and self-regulation to know when to go into those two modes. Uh, That is... Of something that you don't hear very often talked about, but I couldn't agree more. It's the difference between sending letters and being a stamp collector. <laughs> and it, it's like, I know people like I have you know 15 years worth of data, and I'm like, and what did you do with your data? That's right. And, and you know they're like the underpants gnomes from South Park. Like they sort of just look around, going, we don't know why we're doing it. We just do it. You know, we're collecting, and it doesn't serve a purpose in that point, at least none that I know of. No, it doesn't. And, you know, we can even loop that back to our previous conversation about self-presentation. When you look at the collecting that goes on uh, across social media, right, in the form of mostly images, um, you really have people who are collecting images as proof, sort of proof of existence, proof of happiness, as opposed to, oh, I'm really getting, I'm getting caught up in that, in the flow state of this moment. Um, and I'm just enjoying myself. Um, you know, you have the Facebook facelifts, for instance, which is an actual thing where people are getting facelifts so that they look better in their Facebook photos, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's what Photoshop is for. Come on, people. <laughs> I have had students tell me that they Photoshop every single photo that goes up of them. On, on Facebook. Now there's something that's incredibly anxiety inducing that is counterproductive to happiness, <laughs> you know, but, but the mentality is, okay, if I maintain this image, I'm going to be happy because this is, this is my sort of, this is the record of who I am and, and sort of my value really. Wow. Uh, it seems like at least you, at least you could do as a biohacker if you're going to do that is like use Fiverr so you don't waste your time <laughs> photoshopping your own thing. Have someone else do it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the effects of of biohacking on the appearance of the body and how that then gets captured and uh-huh. in, in, in social media across social media it's it's, it's very interesting. Well, so at the same time, we're kind of on social media now. Like yeah. I'm I'm recording this video. It's going to go up on YouTube on you know the bulletproof 
executive channel and you've got on like nice lip gloss your hair's up like you look really professional and like appropriately dressed for this like you know your necklace is nice but not too big not too small not too ostentatious like you you followed your rules nicely so there'll be lots of people going this is a great video and uh me i look slightly less than homeless i mean more than homeless whatever <laughs> but no i'm kidding I, I i did my hair too you know i put on a little spritzer whatever it is you do uh, but i'm a guy i don't have to uh, so what's the difference okay someone used chemicals and makeup and like i mean you you did a good job you look nice right. uh, at the same time like if you could have photoshopped this with some little video filter wouldn't that have just saved you time right and we can't you're absolutely right you make a great point and it's not about saying that there should be no sort of virtual biohacking, because that right. is something for us to consider, especially if you look at Second Life, which I find incredibly fascinating. And for a while, I made all of my students in one of my classes participate in, in Second Life, wow. um, <laughs> uh, which which they thought I was absolutely crazy for. But uh, but it's really interesting because it challenges so many things. So when you are when you get to design your body, which is kind of what biohackers are trying oh, to yeah. do. Very right. Much. And so when you actually get to design it from scratch, what choices do you make? And so the norm, interestingly, in spaces like Second Life and in many, many video games is this state of perfection. And so some of my students have done experiments where they where they make less than perfect choices. And so they look, quote unquote, more real as an experiment. And the other avatars are very eager to help them because they think they just must be so misguided that they would make that because if given the choice, wouldn't we all look perfect, right? <laughs> so I, I was going to ask you about hacking your virtual identity, but uh, I didn't think we'd get into sort of the realms of science fiction. So when you get into like transhumanism and, and I mean, I, maybe isn't that much science fiction anymore. There's yeah, the, the perfect people, you know, the smartest people, but there's also like the odd person who has, you know, four arms and a giant hole in their abdomen just because it was cool. And right. I mean, I, I love hanging out in San Francisco. In fact, I've often said, if you want to find like the best coffee in a city, you want like the most tattoos, stretched ears and piercings because that correlates nicely with people who care about coffee. And like, right. okay, so that's one vanguard of like, frankly, body modification, yeah. right? That's, so. That's Absolutely. Yeah. How do you explain that? And like, how do you, I don't know if that even ties back to virtual identity, but how do you sort of explain that sort of quote, less than perfect from one ideal, but like, like why the diversity that we see now that we didn't see a long time ago? So I think that goes beyond the realm of the philosophy of aesthetics and, and beauty. I mean, that's a sort of biological preference, right? That we like symmetry. We like pretty things. Um, these are, these are, part of our innate preferences. But what's interesting is that we layer that with culture. And so culture is all about signs and symbols. It's all about the semiotics of culture. And that's what's at play when you have tattoos and piercings and particular subculture styles is you're giving off a symbol. And that symbol is only, it only registers with someone if they're familiar with it. So if you think about an alien, who comes down and they see someone who's pierced and tattooed or whatever, those things don't mean anything to someone who has not been taught what the rules of that game are. And that's true actually for any subculture where you have to be taught what each thing means. You have to have a certain level of experience to then be able to judge it accordingly, grade it accordingly, privilege it accordingly. Um, and so what's changed is that 
the perception, the cultural perception of those things has evolved enough so that it's now in the forefront of our culture and it's become desirable among certain subcultures, not desirable in others. And it's a way of marking the self. It, it, it's intended to mark, you know, what, what your preferences might be, how you might respond to something, um, you know, how much money you might make, you know, what your profession might be, all of these, all of these all these components of identity and your sort of cultural identity are, are marked in your body in a lot of different ways. I always say it's interesting if you go to um, uh, a nude beach and you observe people there, even there you will have bodies that have been biohacked to a certain extent, uh, right? Whether it's through exercise or the sun or tattoos, interesting piercings. You see a lot of interesting piercings. <laughs> at, uh, at oh, piece. you've been too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, there, are, there are still symbols uh, that people are giving off um, and there are different codes that people are operating on accordingly. And those codes are actually really important because they actually keep social order. They help us to know how to relate to each other. So again, they're not merely superficial. All right. I have to ask this question. Beards. What about beards? Virtual or non-virtual? What do they say? It's interesting. I was just I just did an interview for a news station that was running um, a piece on facial hair and hairiness actually in general. The resurgence of male hairiness and they're sort of tying it into American was American Hustle and um, some different sort of seventies inspired motifs. Wolverine. I mean, the ultimate biohacker. There you go. Um, or you have, you know, the, the hipster kind of Brooklyn scruffy sort of, sort of look. So, you know, I think my stance on it is that the resurgence of, of beards and male hairiness is sort of a backlash to um, the kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the feminization of men, but this sort of, this new cultural imperative that men engage in grooming rituals, just like women, um, and that they're held to a new standard, just like women. And so there's sort of a backlash and men saying, no, I'm going to, I'm going to be hyper-masculine. I'm going to just go ahead and be, be manly. And some would argue that the, the facial hair is also a reaction to to an over feminization of of men to a, a masculization uh, of men in a more kind of more genderless society if you want to call it that all i can say is i had my chest waxed once so electrodes would stick better and come off more easily from my biohacking and oh my god that hurts so bad i am never waxing my chest again and i don't really care if it's masculine or feminine or whatever else but you know <laughs> that hurts and then how how it feels when women have other body parts. <laughs> I, after that experience, I just assume that women are so much better at handling pain than me that I'm just not in into that waxing thing for myself anymore. <laughs> no, but I think I think the beard phenomenon is very interesting. And then, of course, you have to throw in the sort of ironic mustache trend, mm -hmm. um, which which was this sort of internet meme for a while. Um, I think facial hair has been interesting and in, in in sort of establishing. And, and kind of being a physical way of speaking out about um, gender norms and expectations. Okay. I, I love that we got to talk about that. And there's two more questions that I really want to ask you about before we run out of time on our show today. One of them is about our relations with our technology devices, like our phones and things like that. 
and you're kind of against them in some ways anyway, and in other ways, you're talking about hacking your online identity. You make people use a second life. So are these, like, or do these sometimes improve our relationships and connections, or are they generally a bad thing? Uh, yes, absolutely. I don't, I don't want to give the impression that I'm anti-technology. Let's use the example of long-distance relationships, right? So I think there, there is uh, an instance where having technology to facilitate keeping in touch and being able to see each other and, you know, via video, um, can be a really, a wonderful way of actually having a relationship that otherwise might deteriorate given geographic distance. Um, and that long distance relationship could be amorous or it could be a familial relationship as well. You know, getting to see parents or grandparents that live um, or get to interact with them on a regular basis and in a really wonderful way. Even something like, oh, what is it? Like words with friends is I think that's what it's called, right? The sort of Scrabble game that people play. So asynchronous relationships um, are often facilitated by technology. Email is an example of an asynchronous, you know, uh, exchange. And those can actually be great because even though you might not be connecting at the same moment, you still are thinking of each other and engaging um, periodically in a sort of casual, fun, playful way. So another example would be something like um, Farmville, right? I don't personally play Farmville, but just the act of fertilizing someone's field um, can, can actually create a sense of happiness and connection between the individuals. Um, and I'm not saying that those are substitutes for um, human interaction. Again, I think it's about that balance and and creating opportunities and space to have meaningful face-to-face -face embodied interaction. But when that's not possible, um, then these sort of virtual surrogates can be really great. Got it. So it, it's not good or bad. It's it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, that's how you use it. Sure. Fair point. That's true of just about everything, including drain cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> Could be good or it can sure stain the curtains. All right. Closet catharsis and strategic shopping. What are those and why do you do those? So, so that is part of the services component of sociology of style. And essentially... You know, I named it Closet Catharsis because, for instance, if I were to work with you and we were to go through your closet, we would talk about every single item that's in there, pretty much every, unless you have an exorbitant number of items, then we, we wouldn't have time for that. But we would talk about pretty much everything that's in there. And all those items have a story and they have a relationship to you. You have experiences that you've had in them. That it, it might even be just, oh, I got a deal on that. And you felt really excited that you didn't pay very much for that. Or maybe something monumental happened in your life during that time. So we sort of parse out this emotional uh, attachment that we have to those items. And then we try to look at it in, from a more objective perspective. What's actually serving you? And how are you perceived in relationship to each of those items? And we basically make piles and say, you know, this is something that doesn't serve you. There's, and there's no justification for this. And one of the ways that I do that is I say, you know, some people want to hold on to things because of the emotional um, value. And I always say, you know, when you're getting dressed, 
is this ever going to win? <laughs> is this ever <laughs> the best you can do? <laughs> Should it ever win? And, and if the answer is no, then it go, it, it's usually discarded. And after we go through that process, it's interesting because it's a very anxiety-inducing process for people. It might seem like it's just this kind of thing where you clean out your closet. But when you really think about it in these terms and you do a mass sort of discarding of, of really, you know, stuff that has become part of your life and your identity, because as we wear clothes, it becomes a sort of second skin for us. Right. And so when you discard that there can, there, a lot of individuals initially have this real sense of loss and, and absence. And then that pretty quickly becomes a really cathartic feeling where they feel that they've sort of opened their themselves to, you know, letting in new things and, and not settling for, for that particular person or identity that they were sort of hanging on to. And it creates an enormous amount of clarity. So eliminating choice, as you know, is a really powerful tool. Okay. That, that is really funny. Now I, I think about this. I have a lot of like tech t-shirts from Silicon Valley and I only wear a t-shirt if the company's either been acquired or gone out of business. I'm like, I'm not going to wear a t-shirt for like a company that's still like doing something. That would, that would just be uncool. But honestly, I live in a small town in Canada and when I travel, I don't really wear t-shirts like that anyway. So they just sit there. So I guess I should just like toss them. All right. I, I get that. And then what? I have all, all the t-shirts that I like invented, like, cause I used to run a t-shirt company many years ago. It was like the first company to sell anything online. I still have like the original t-shirt I made, but who wears 25 year old t-shirts? It's like yellow anyway, but I think I have to keep that one. <laughs> well, I would say, you know, I think that your listeners are about optimization, right? Oh, yeah. about clarity. And so you think about what do you have to do every single day? You have to get dressed pretty much every single day, right? And so eliminating choice or eliminating things that only cloud your judgment and aren't optimal for you are key. So if that means you have 10 pieces that you wear all the time, but that are great, and then maybe you spend a little more money on, do that. Create a uniform for yourself. You know who's probably the most badass of all about that? And no matter what you think about his politics, uh, Obama has it down on the suits and someone gave him a hard time and he's like, I have the gray and I have the blue. And that way I don't have to think about it. I wear the one I didn't wear the day before and I don't pick out my own ties. That's right. And I'm like, oh my God, I could wear a suit under those rules. Otherwise, ugh, I'm not going to deal with that. So I, I was like, that is the cleanest answer I've ever heard. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a little bit easier for guys. Um, again, they can they can really create a uniform, a very narrow uniform that can look great and they can replicate pretty much every day. Women, it's a little more complicated, but but we can we can do a variation on that as well. Uh, that is that is awesome, and you've made me think about that uh, quite a bit now. I have to go throw away half my closet. Damn you! All right, <laughs> strategic shopping. What's that? So a lot of people purchase things because it's on sale or because they find something that they they just like it, right? And those are two fine reasons for making a purchase. But if you are, again, if you're into optimizing your life and not clouding your future judgment on things, then you want to approach every purchase from a holistic perspective. How is that going to work into your larger sense of identity? How is that going to contribute positively to the persona that you're constructing? And how does it literally figure into everything else that you own? So it, I advocate for at least 75% of, of what you own all working together. So if you need to throw everything in a bag and pack 
uh, in five minutes, you can pretty much do that because it's all complimentary. You just don't have to think about it. You know, some people want a different extravagant outfit for every day, but you know what? Most people, they don't. People don't want to look fashionable. They want to look right and feel confident. So Steve Jobs had it right. <laughs> yes, he had He had his uniform. He branded himself. You know, there are a lot of huge figures who have really branded themselves aesthetically. And so I think that is a major part of, of optimizing who you are and making the most out of, you know, whatever situation that you're in is, is having a visual mark. Very cool. I guess my orange glasses count for that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they would. <laughs> uh, they don't always match my shirt, though. All right. Here's the last question, the question that I ask everyone in the show. Right. And that is, is it true that your mom drinks Bulletproof coffee? Oh, wait. That's not the question, but is it true? It is true. <laughs> she is now a devotee. Yes. So... My mom in Iowa. <laughs> that is so cool. Uh, you mentioned that right before the show. I just had to say, hey, that's awesome. And hi, Anna's mom. <laughs> the real final question on the show is, what are your top three recommendations for people who want to perform better? People want to kick more ass, whatever you know, whatever their domain in life is. It doesn't have to be style or sociology, just your wisdom distilled to three things. So I think the number one thing that comes to mind for me is to find a way to be present as often as you can to the people you're with, to yourself. I think that being present and giving someone your attention and your focus is one of um, the greatest gifts that we can currently give other individuals. And I think that it's very much rewarded and noted. I've had people that I've spent an hour with tell me they can't remember the last time that someone didn't check their phone uh, during that time. And so they feel very special. They feel like they have a connection with you and you feel that as well as a result. And, you know, being present to yourself, finding, you know, creating a meditation practice or learning to find moments where you can unplug, whether it's for a few minutes a day or if it's one day a week or however it is that it works into your lifestyle. So, so being present, um, and then I would say, you know, take a, an active interest in your self-presentation, in both your physical self-presentation and your virtual self-presentation. Both are extremely important. Now you can't have one and then just ignore the other. They, so you, you have sort of double duty now, thanks to uh, technology and the internet. You really have uh, two selves that you have to maintain. Um, and that's that image management is 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 a lot. It's a lot of work. And that's why I advocate for this sort of streamlining of things so that it doesn't have to be a stressful activity. Um, one, one activity that I would challenge all of your listeners to do is to do the sort of ethnographic um, experiment that I have my students do, where they change one thing about their personal self-presentation and then go out about their day and see how they feel, see how, if they feel differently, see how people respond to them differently. I mean, they could do it over the course of a week and change a number of different things and then sort of reflect on that. It tends to be a very enlightening experience. Um, and you really start to see how attached you are to different aspects of your physicality. Um, so I would say be cognizant and aware and mindful of your uh, self-presentation. And then the third one I would say is to 
take advantage of the abundance of technological tools that keep emerging that either track your happiness or facilitate ways of unplugging. Um, so a few of those would be, there's a track your happiness project. I don't know if you've ever um, done that. And that's a, a sort of, it's a, a, a survey that's sent to you a couple times a day for I think about a, two weeks. Uh, and you see graphs of when you're happiest. You really, it's a, it's a great tool for cool. quantified self. And then it will repeat it. Um, six months or a year later, you can set it and you, you really start to see patterns in, in, in what makes you happy. And, and the same thing with unplugging. Um, I subscribe to a, a newsletter called the undo list, um, which I think is, is really terrific. And every week it, it gives you prompts of things to do and think about while you're disconnecting and unplugging and connect plugging into individuals and nature and other uh, aspects of life. So I would say find ways to use technology to facilitate happiness and um, mindfulness practices. Awesome. That came to three, right? That's three. <laughs> I was like making sure I counted them. And uh, would you also let people know where they can learn more about the things you're doing now, Twitter, Facebook, URLs, stuff like that? Yes, absolutely. They can go to my website, which is AnnaAkbari.com. That's A-N-N-A-A-K-B-A-R-I.com. Um, and my Twitter handle is just at AnnaAkbari. Awesome. We'll include those links in the show notes and when we publicize the podcast. So if you didn't get those or you need the link to the happiness thing you just talked about, we'll put that in there as well. And Anna, I wanted to send you some of our new chocolate truffled espresso beans or coffee beans, um, but they sold out. So you're going to have to wait. They'll be back in in just like a week. So now, they're not happiness spike. That just... <laughs> <laughs> they were really popular. I ate a whole bag of them like yesterday on an airplane and it was it was a very happy airplane. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but uh, we'll send you some as soon as they're back. And uh, just to say thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking some time this evening. The first ever night recorded podcast. So <laughs> set a record. Have an awesome evening. Thank you so much. Not that many people know it, but the first company I started was a t-shirt company when I was about 20. It turns out that company was the first company to sell anything over the internet, the very first working example of e-commerce. And it was featured in lots and lots of magazines in the early to mid 90s because it was such an innovation. Well, I'm back in the t-shirt business because you can get the new Bulletproof Executive t-shirts and they're better than any t-shirt I've ever made before. We actually found a super high-end stretchy t-shirt and we bleach out the color in the t-shirt. It's a nice sort of chocolate brown gray color. And then where we bleach it out, we print the orange bulletproof logo. It says the state of high performance. If you want to look really good in a super high quality t-shirt that doesn't cost a lot of money, head on over to UpgradedSelf.com and see how cool these t-shirts are. They fit amazingly well, they're super soft, and they're really affordable, especially for a t-shirt that's this high quality. I appreciate you showing support for the podcast, for the show, and for the work that I'm doing on The Bulletproof Executive. Thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.